Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Are you a parent with a newly diagnosed child with autism? Are you looking for answers on how you can help your struggling child? The online training course, Discovering Behavioral Intervention, is the answer. Real parents take you through applied behavior analysis in 10 step-by-step modules. Learn more at youdiscovering.org and follow them on Twitter at youdiscovering. We are very proud to have Mayor Johnson as our sponsor. Mayor Johnson is the world's special education super source. The Mayor Johnson sale is on. They have incredible, drastic savings on hundreds of products. So go to MayorJohnson.com. That's Mayor-Johnson.com. Follow them on Twitter at Mayor Johnson and visit them today. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Special Needs Talk Radio Network. We provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs and child-adolescent mental health communities. Thank you for joining us tonight. And now, on to the interview. Good evening. Good evening. My name is Dr. Richard Selznick, and I want to welcome you to School Struggles. I am proud to be a part of the Coffee Clutch team. On School Struggles, we talk about a range of topics, including learning disabilities, dyslexia, special education, ADHD, and a whole host of other interesting topics that affect your child. Just by way of introduction, I am a child psychologist and the director of the Cooper Learning Center, which is a part of the Department of Pediatrics, Cooper University Healthcare, which is located in Voorhees, New Jersey. And I am the author of two books, both published by Sentient Publications. The first one is The Shutdown Learner, Helping Your Academically Discouraged Child, and the more recently published book called School Struggles. And you can learn more about these at my website, which is www.shutdownlearner.com. That's one word, shutdownlearner.com. That site is loaded with blogs and lots of tidbits for parents, and the books are also available on Amazon or Barnes & Noble's. So it's the goal of this radio show, School Struggles, that we talk in down-to-earth, plain language for parents to help them understand their child better, kind of like we're chatting in the living room. I'm happy tonight to have a very good friend of mine and colleague, Dr. Howard Margolis. And Dr. Margolis is Professor Emeritus of Reading and Special Education at the City University of New York. And Howard is a former editor of the Journal of Psychological and Educational Consultation. And for more than two decades, he has edited the Reading and Writing Quarterly, Overcoming Learning Difficulties. Howard is also the co-author of Reading Disabilities, Beating the Odds, and Five Ways to Help Your Child. Howard has received many honors, such as two Media Arts Awards and the New Jersey Developmental Disabilities Council and the Educator of the Year Award from the Learning Disabilities Association of New Jersey. Howard was a special education hearing officer for Delaware and New Jersey, and he has frequently helped parents and schools 
to settle their disputes. In 2007, Queens College's Department of Education and Community Program honored his work by, by creating the Howard Margolis Advocacy and Social Justice Award. His website is www.reading2008.com or howardmargolis.com. So, Howard, welcome to the show tonight. Uh, thank you, Richard. I appreciate it. My pleasure. It's great to have you. Howard and I, just we, we frequently will get together and have these sort of co – we have real coffee clutches where we talk about these issues <laughs> over – cups of coffee and uh and we sometimes have arguments but for the most part we we have a lot of collegial agreement i think um how how it brings as you can tell by his bio he brings just a wealth of experience and perspective to the issues of reading disabilities he's also an expert on um, you know, IEPs and what should be included in IEPs and special education law. So he goes in many, many different directions. So it's really a, an honor and a pleasure to have Howard on the show. Tonight, tonight's theme, we're talking about struggling readers primarily. That's where we're going to be. It's hard for Howard and I to stay on track. So we're going to try to keep ourselves on track. And we're, we're really talking to parents. That's mostly what this show is about in general. So we're really talking to parents to help them to understand in more in down to earth ways how to you know, how to help their child who's struggling. So the the theme of tonight is sort of the ten or so top points uh that a parent can that almost any parent can implement and how it's going to help you out there and help us all understand what can parents do with their struggling readers. I think it's a great topic. So Howard's going to, we're going to go David Letterman style. We're going to count down a little bit. So Howard, what, what in the first point, you sent me some ideas. The first point you talked about his, you mentioned something about the child's school day being tough and draining. Right. So you had a, an idea tie. This is your top, Number one, not only number one point, but the the first point we're going to kick off with. So, what what would you say about the tough yeah. day and the draining training? I mean, if you look at the life of a child who struggles with reading in school, it's not just draining and straining; it's humiliating at times. And the kid sees himself, the child sees himself or herself, and compares himself to all the other children, and they're getting ahead, and he can't understand why. And he's sort of like a batter. He goes up to the plate. He tries to get a hit. In this case, the kid tries to read, and he strikes out on a regular basis. One of the difficulties is that many kids are simply being taught at their frustration level rather than at their instructional or their comfort uh, uh, level. And this makes things extraordinarily emotionally draining for kids. And so what parents need to do at home, they need to compensate for this. One of the ways of compensating is to bring lots of fun and satisfying things into the child's uh, life. Um, and what you want more than anything else is for outside of school, for the child to begin to feel real good about himself, to see that he's competent, for her to see that she can do things well, and that other people can appreciate what she does. Um, you also want your child 
to have lots of fun. It's almost like a deposit in the bank. You accumulate, at The more fun you have and the more you learn to take credit for your competencies outside of school and legitimate credit, not overblown, the more you're going to be able to handle school on an emotional basis. And when you're struggling with reading, when you're struggling with reading, you have to also remember that many kids who are struggling with reading lose their motivation by third grade, by fourth grade. Why? Because they believe they can't do it. So if you build them up on the outside, oftentimes that transfers to school. So that's about the most important thing that I can think of any parent doing, being supportive and bringing fun and satisfaction into their kid's life. At the same time, this does not mean abrogating, taking away the responsibility of the child to do things that he should be doing. It could be he should be um, putting the dishes in the dishwasher. It should be that he's supposed to make his bed. Whatever he's supposed to do, he still should be doing. But you also want to complement that with lots of things that he enjoys doing. You know, you and I are so on the same page. I know that we have so many points of agreement, and I would actually just want to echo, you know, that as probably the. I, I totally agree with you in terms of a number one, because uh, you know we both use a lot of imagery, like you did, to help parents understand, and I. I talk about, you know, the uh, the tank being emptied emotionally, you know, just getting emotionally yeah. drained, like you say, and that was the that was really the premise of shutdown learner. That by the time that, you know, they're in fourth grade, they're, they're they're depleted. The tank is, you know, the air has leaked out of the tire. So what I, you know, and I absolutely I'm echoing. I think it's a great point. I t- I try to have parents play. You know, simple games every week. You know, not every day because that becomes pressure. But you know, playing a game yeah. of Uno, building Legos for twenty minutes with, a, yeah. with their child, and not and not talking about school, not talking about Absolutely. did you do your homework or any of that stuff. So I really like that point. It's a great, great point. And related uh, to yeah. that, and related to that is a parent can lead by following. As paradoxical as that sounds, look at what your child likes to do when he doesn't have to do what you or someone else wants him to do. And listen when he doesn't have to answer your questions. What is it that he wants to talk about? And what are the concerns and fears that he has? Yeah, no, I I think it's it's a, a, a great point in the sense of you know, really kind of following following the child's lead in terms of his or her interests, trying to, you know, really have, I think what you're saying, because I always found you to be a very um, empathetic person, you know, you really have a good way of, under, you know, putting yourself in that child's shoes, and that's what I think you're talking about here. Well, Correct? I'm, yeah. I'm a... I'm a lucky person. I mean, the most important thing you never mentioned in the the intro is that I have four grandchildren who live right close by, and they teach me an awful lot. They humble me. They teach me an awful lot. And if I am not in touch with them, then I get into trouble. So, yeah, Yeah. they do teach me. Yeah, you've said that to me before. I've heard you say things like that, and I find myself thinking the same thing. I mean, I'm certainly, I haven't gotten there yet in terms of being a grandparent, but 
I do think that having had children and seeing them through the different stages and ages has also humbled me. And you you know you see things through other parents' eyes, probably on it for me on a daily basis when I hear people with the struggles that they have with children. It's like, hey, we've all been there. You know, no one gets that. I always say, no one gets that unscathed when it comes to parenting. Mm-hmm. Um, your point. Let's move on to the second. Great point, Howard. The second okay. point would be um, you talk about something about ask your child's teachers to tell you what books and yeah. materials that we think to elaborate on that for us a little bit. Yeah. Well, one of the things that you want to do is to make school as easy and as successful as possible for your child. And one way you can do that is to is for you, the parent, without being a tutor, without trying to teach him how to read, to prepare him in advance for what's going to be coming up in school. An example for, that I saw uh, last year, um, a parent had a child, I think he was in uh, the fifth grade, and his reading ability was somewhere around the beginning of second grade, the middle of second grade, and he was struggling. And he was also very verbal and intelligent in class, but he couldn't handle uh, the reading. Uh, And in social studies, he was having great difficulty because he couldn't handle the texts. And the school district wasn't too much into things like digital books. So uh, one of the things that the parent did, she went to the library when she found out that they were going to be studying the Civil War, and what happened after the Civil War and the move west. They were going to be focusing on the move to uh, uh, the west. And so what she did was she got some of the CDs from the library on that topic. They sat down, and she absolutely brought the father in because the father was very important in the child's uh, life. They all sat down and watched the CDs together as a family, and they discussed it and they went over some of the vocabulary that the child was going to need in school, and that made it a very successful experience for the child, for the parents, and for the teacher. And one of the things that the teacher did, so I'm told, is that the teacher asked the parents, what did they do at home to make their child so successful on this topic? And they explained to the teacher. So what a parent can do is go to the school, ask for a list of what's going to occur, what the child's going to have to read and learn about in the next uh, month, and do what you can in friendly, informative ways without putting any pressure, no tests or things of that sort, in friendly, informative, supported, and conversational ways, not inquisitional ways, what he's going to learn. If you can focus on what the upcoming curriculum is going to be, and you don't, again, have to test him, you don't have to hammer it home, informal and pleasant, then what you might be able to do is to better prepare your child to handle that. And so that's one thing that parents can do, find out what's going to be taught. We're bat- we're batting a thousand. I'm with you again. And um, well, this is rare. I, I know, isn't it? Yeah, it really is for us that we agree so much. You know. Well, um, I guess you're learning a lot. What can I, say? I finally, I'm give, I'm finally yielding, Howard. I'm I'm finally yielding. <laughs> but it, I, uh, um, 
echoing that again, uh, yeah, I like to think of it as providing a child with a roadmap. And, I agree. You know, I, I also talk to parents, you know, kind of piggybacking on what you're saying here. Uh, you know, for the decoding struggling kids, I, you know, you know, I so see so many of those mm-hmm. kids that are struggling with decoding. I like to have the parents preview the words up front. Like, you know, you can open up, a, like when you say, typically these children are unfortunately working at their frustration level. Right. And so you, they get words, they get texts that they really can handle. And I, I like to have parents that look at the page up front and you know, write down the difficult words, you know, institute porcupine mechanic, find those big words that the kid's going to have trouble handling, preview them with him, him or her up front, put them on index cards, discuss them a little bit, what they might mean, and it provides the child with a kind of a roadmap. So it's, it's sort of like your idea of giving them, letting them know what's to come, wouldn't you think? I agree up to a point. See, I we couldn't agree fully. You see that? Okay. We, I also we couldn't think agree it depends. <laughs> I also think it depends upon the relationship between the parent and the child and how well the child is going to accept any tutoring or direct instruction from the parent. Right. If we, it leads to a lot of friction in the home, which it oftentimes does, it's not worth it. But there's also yep. something else that a parent can do if the child is in special ed. Uh, with the IEP, one of the things that the, chi- that the parent can do is be sure that the right instructional levels, the comfort levels, if you will, and the right frustration levels or overwhelming uh, levels are in the IEP so that the frustration level by IEP is avoided, the instructional level is focused on in school, and the independent level which is the level where the child can succeed on his own if he makes a moderate degree of effort. That's what homework is at the independent level. And if schools don't adhere to that, then the child is going to be overwhelmed, frustrated, and in some way is not going to cooperate with what the school wants to do. And I can tell you this. I can understand exactly where the child is coming from on the basis of experience. Take a course in which you don't understand the language and see what happens. When I walked into my freshman chemistry class and I did not have chemistry at Tilden High School in Brooklyn uh, and I walked into my freshman chemistry class in college, in two days I was overwhelmed and I did something that I rarely do. I quit. I dropped the class, and that's what kids do. Either psychologically or physically, they quit. And you want yeah. to avoid that. And oftentimes, by having the IEP have the right instructional and frustration and independent levels, you can. Well, if you were from Staten Island like me, maybe you wouldn't have quit. You know, you're the Brooklyn boy. I don't know. What can I tell you? Well, we're a little bit more advanced. <laughs> Um, yeah, and and you know, I also agree with you about the about the parent friction. You know, agree that it's not, that the parent is often is fraught with danger. So I, I think that that cautionary point is is really really well taken. Your Thank you. point, your point number three um, is 
it's tied into visiting the child's school to see what it's like. And you say something yeah. like, do this several times a year. So let's hear about that. Look, I recognize that many parents have to work. I really recognize that. I mean, I came from Brooklyn Projects, and I recognize the importance of putting food on the table and being able to pay the rent and things of that sort. But if you possibly can, go to the school. If you possibly can, volunteer a little bit in the school. Get to know the school. Oftentimes, we have erroneous understandings and impressions of schools. And sometimes, we look at schools from afar in very negative ways. And sometimes, this is right, but sometimes, it's wrong. If you get to understand the culture of the school, how we do things in this particular school, what teachers are empathetic, highly competent, technically and things of that sort, would be good teachers of reading, then you can help to make better decisions about the program that your child should be in. And you can begin to influence people in the schools. And you can find out what's coming up. For example, you can find out whether or not there's going to be a school play that your child may like to participate in, which, by the way, can be real good for uh, uh, developing fluency in reading. If there's going to be a book sale that he can work at or a field day where he can excel in front of his peers, these are the kinds of things that you can find out if you're in the school. And once you, know, you understand yeah. a school, you have a better idea as to who to ask for what and how to get things that your child should have or needs or you want. You know, I, I think it, it reminds me, too, uh, that, you know, th this is still a relational type of business. And Absolutely. getting, getting, you know, having this, you know, it, it changes. You talk about beating the odds, which I think is an interesting, so yeah. that's your title of your book, read, you know, Reading Disabilities, Beating yeah. the Odds. And I think in a lot of ways that's what you're talking about. We're talking about how do we shift the odds. So, so the teachers and the schools, some people get their back up when they hear me talk like this because they think, well, I shouldn't have to, I shouldn't have to, you know, go through all of this. Well, it's relational. So if they look at you in a little bit more, you know, that you're helpful and you're there and, you know, there's a, it's, it's human interaction. So if you're just an email and a constant email barrage, they might, you know, they, they might look at you very differently. I agree with that. And I think it's important when you see people who are not very effective with your child, not to blame them. I know this sounds counterintuitive. Most people mm -hmm. are doing the best that they can, and you mm -hmm. don't know what's going on in their life, and you don't know why they're not doing a better job sometimes. Uh, that doesn't mean that you can't be tough on the issues so that your kid gets the program he needs, so that your kid gets the services he needs, so that he gets the competent reading instruction that he needs. But at the same time, it's very important to treat people with respect. Look, the first two years of teaching, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being a great teacher, 1 being a terrible teacher, I was probably minus 1,000. Any kid yeah. who had me was unlucky, and I was struggling to do the best thing, to, to be the best teacher possible. Uh, it's hard. Teaching is a hard, hard job. Yeah. Uh, 
it doesn't get the credit it deserves. Yeah. It's funny you say that because I was just going to say something like that, and I, I, you can't help when you're in this business that we're in, when you listen to parents' stories or you interact with children, you, re, you remember back to your early days in the business, you know, and I was a young teacher on Staten Island, and I, and I would shudder, God forbid, they had videos of me teaching back then. <laughs> you know, it would be just like, you know, yelling at children. I mean, I'm almost embarrassed to think about it. And, and you know, I was, a bit, like you say, in the first couple of years, I was truly not, I mean, I might have been a, okay in the sense that the kids liked me and they might have, may, hopefully, I would like to believe that, connected. But in terms of the actual profession of teaching, I realized I knew how hard it was, and that's one of the reasons I didn't stay with it because of all the management issues that came with it. So, so it is a very, very tough business to do well. Before before we go on to uh, the next point, just a comment uh, about where I am and why I'm here, okay? Um, I was so bad my first two years. I mean, the only reason I entered teaching as an unemployed history uh, major was because I needed to pay the rent, okay? I knew nothing about what I was doing, absolutely right. nothing about what I was doing. If I had rigor mortis in the district that I was in, they would have kept me, okay? Uh, I, but yeah. I was really bad, uh, yeah. and uh, I said, I am going to stay in this field until I really get good at it. Yeah. Well, that was almost 50 years ago. I'm still in the field. Well, that, I'm trying. Yeah. And that's where, when I was, my my dad was my educational hero in that regard because he was a wonderful principal on Staten Island. And, and, he, and, I, and I'd come home sort of depressed about how, how um, yeah. I was interacting because he'd say, look, Richard, it's largely the intangibles that matter. That's what the kids are going to remember. So it was in that way, that has always stayed with me. In I terms think of, that's important my work with children, and I, I think you bring that too, where you, that goes back to your point number one, you know, where recharging the child's battery and, and, remembering, to con and remembering to connect with the child is the absolute paramount thing. And that's why I think that ultimately computers and technology are not going to be replacing good teachers. So, you know, point number and four. Kids, and, um, kids, and kids are going to work for people they like, right, not exactly. for people they dislike. Right. Okay, point number four. No, that's true. Um, <laughs> that's very true. Great style. Um, um, so you said an old-fashioned. I like you know in my in my book I talk about old you know old school you know uh, old school ideas you know things that we've forgotten about in education. So you're saying here's an old-fashioned suggestion: read to your child. So you know, read almost to your self child. obvious, but talk about that a little bit. Read to your child. Enjoy what you're reading. As you're reading it, be sure it's on a topic that he or she is interested in. Create a discussion afterwards. If a child is reading at a second grade uh, level but has the intellect of someone, and I'm oversimplifying now, uh, and but has the intellect of a fifth grader, read to him materials at the fifth grade. It enriches his listening comprehension. It enriches his vocabulary. It's a message that you are intelligent. You are not dumb. And many intelligent kids think that they're dumb because they can't read. And that's a word that they use. 
uh, and they put themselves down. So what you're doing is you are communicating. I respect your intellectual curiosity. I respect your intelligence. But, and this is an important but, if there are other kids in the family, be sure you read to them too so that the struggling reader doesn't feel as if she's being singled out. Because if she feels she's being singled out, she may interpret it as humiliation. And that's going to pull the rug out of everything. Now, right. um, it could be that you also want, he may also want to read it a little bit later. Before he reads it to himself, ask him if he wants to skim it and see if there are any words that are real hard and he can point to them or circle them if everything is Xeroxed uh, and um, just tell him what the words are. Don't ask him to sound it out. Don't ask him to break it into syllables. Don't ask him what the phonic sounds are and things of that sort. Don't ask him what word it resembles, like book resembles look, nothing like that. Just tell him what the word is. This should be comforting, not directly instructional. Right. So what you're saying is don't turn into the grand inquisitor and don't badger or beat it to death, right? Right. Look, every once in a while you can make a comment that this starts with the mm sound. Okay? Right. Once in a while. If right. it's if it's if it's going to lead to some progress and the kids not going to feel down about that. But a parent's primary role with a struggling reader, and I emphasize struggling reader, is not to become the tutor. Now many people will disagree with me. I, you know, I, you're in you're in there are some people who have been very successful in teaching their own uh, child, but odds are you're not going to be. I'm sure one day there will be a story about someone who did neurosurgery on himself, but most people are not going to be very successful at doing that. And teaching reading to a child who is a struggling reader, a disabled reader, a child with dyslexia, whatever term we want to use, and they're not put-downs, whatever term we want to use, is very, very complicated. I mean, I have a doctorate in reading with an emphasis on disabilities. I've edited journals, academic journals in this area for more than two decades. And in terms of my knowledge and skill, I still have some enormous black holes. This is complicated stuff. So, don't get I'm, caught. I'm, yeah. Uh, in that I'm with web you of again. complexity. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, no, I'm sorry. I interrupted you. My apology. You said don't get caught in that web of complexity. You said don't get caught in that web of complexity. Right. And then I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> um, I again, we you know, there's agreement. I, I think that what we try to do at our center is not to encourage parents to get caught in the web of complexity. But we do the equivalent, I think, of, in effect, taking the child in the backyard and tossing the ball around. So we give mm -hmm. them, we give them the parent, very specific instructions, like 10 minutes, here's the activity, make it fun, make it rapid, and, you know, so they have a contained, you know, they're not being asked to teach 
a, a complex reading lesson. It's more, it's a reinforcement type of activity. It should be fun. It should be lively, and that's how how we do it. Um, I agree. Your point five is learn how to do toppings paired reading. Now, I don't know much about yeah. toppings paired reading, I'll, but I, I do know about paired reading, okay. so let's hear about this. All righty. And this point is really not contradicting what I previously uh, said about don't be a child's direct instructor or teacher. Uh, uh, Topping uh, from the University of Dundee in Scotland is an educational psychologist, and he is good. His technique, it's simple, it's powerful, it's supported by a great deal of research, and I first found out about it when I observed parents using it with their children. And it was wonderful. It's probably about two decades, three decades old now. Uh, And basically, what a parent does, and schools, by the way, there are schools, public schools, who teach parents how to use this. It's a simple but powerful technique. Um, What parents do is they identify a book or their child brings them a book that he wants to read to the parent, and 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 the parent and the child, or the or, and, and the parent and the child are going to read the book in uh, uh, unison. They're going to read it out loud together, and they're not going to read the whole book. Maybe they're going to read two to three pages, and this is something that the child has practiced. He's been successful on. Uh, he's very comfortable in reading this aloud. And they do it together. It's usually better for, for both the parent and the child to have their own copy of the book. Uh, but let's assume that they're reading the same copy of the book. And so they're reading it out loud, and when the child makes a mistake on a word, the parent stops the child, Perhaps they signal that there'll be a tap on the shoulder. The parent stops the child. The parent tells the child, points to the word, tells the child the word. The child then repeats the word, looks at the word, repeats the word, goes back to the beginning of the sentence, and starts reading again in unison aloud with the parent. This goes on for maybe 10 minutes. Uh, At the end of the 10 minutes or so, or the three pages, uh, if the child wants, the parent and the child discuss what he read in terms of the meaning of what he read, the implications of what he read, what he might to learn, what he might like to learn more about, why he liked the uh, selection, what other books he might want to read. Then the parent can take if she or he remembers two or three words that the child had difficulty with, puts them on index cards, says this is the word challenge, that was the word challenge that he had the difficulty with, this was the word uh, a barometer, child looks at the word, says the word, and then the parent says, point to the word challenge. The child does that, point to the word uh, uh, a barometer, the child does that, it's over. That's basically it. It builds fluency, it improves word recognition, 
and the child can excel, and this is important, and the child can excel in front of the parent rather than coming home with a test paper that shows he only got a 44 on the test. And rather than saying, uh, I feel terrible about this, the child can say to himself, you know, I read this to my mom or I read this to my dad and they were proud of me and I did well on this. That's basically topping paired reading. Um, And I, I would assume that if a parent wanted to learn more about it, they could Google Toppings paired reading if they want to define right. that, right? Right. Okay. T-O-P-P-I-N-G, or they can go to his website at the University of Dundee in Scotland. Um, it's what a very would be popular the, approach. What would be your sense of the upper age range that this can be done? I don't have a sense of the upper age range. It really depends upon the child. Uh, and it depends upon, and it depends upon the relationship between the child and the parent uh if the if the child doesn't want to do this but wants to be in a play at school, then the parent and the child can practice the play right. it is part um, of the I, play. I would like to make a comment just to the if if you happen to be listening to this show right now live at the forty five minute mark it will cut off however. Um, <laughs> no surprise to me, we are going to be going over the 45 minutes. So if, if you want to hear the whole thing, we're we, we, we going to take it to an hour max. So if you want to hear the whole episode, you can hear it uh, as a podcast after the fact for the last 15 minutes. I apologize if you're listening live, but at 45 minutes it will cut off, and I'm going to keep Howard honest for his last five points to get us in the last 15 or so minutes. So we're going to keep you on track. Not that you've been off track. I'm really teasing as always. Um, but that for the listeners, that's what's going on. All right, point number six. Um, you talk about taking your child places and you emphasize right. label, label, label. Let's talk about that. Right. Look, if you have an opportunity, take your child to the library, take your child to the zoo, take take your child on a hike, take your child to places that are perhaps not that far from your home, places that your child might enjoy. Uh, And when you see things there that your child is interested in, put a label on it. Give it a name. Uh, Why is that so important, Howard? Why why do you feel that's so important? Because that teaches vocabulary. And vocabulary is critical to all aspects of school and life and it's critical to reading. For example, in phonics, uh, when you decode a word in phonics, you usually don't get the word right. You get an approximation of the word. But if the word is in your listening vocabulary, then chances are you're going to say, well, this sounds like spoon. Spoon, it makes sense in the context, and you get it right. So it helps in decoding, it helps in understanding what you read, and it helps in understanding what you hear, and it helps in public speaking, it it helps in writing without a vocabulary. Think about this. How well would you do in a foreign country like Russia or China or Bulgaria 
or hungry if you didn't understand the language and you couldn't speak it. You know, you're at a tremendous advantage. And being a child who's a struggling reader, very often it's like not understanding the language in terms of word recognition, but also vocabulary slows down as the child gets to third and fourth grade because the kind of material he's often reading is at first and second grade. And if his motivation is depleted, there's a good chance that he's not going to pay attention to vocabulary in class. Oftentimes he'll be worrying about what if I fail, he'll be very anxious, or he'll be so turned off from school that he's not going to pay attention to anything. So you want to build his listening vocabulary and his speaking vocabulary. That's going to help him or her in every aspect of life. And if you as a parent do not put a label on it, he's going to be referring to, let's say, a television set as that thing over there. He's going to be referring to a clock or a watch as that thing over there. In other words, he needs a word to put on what his experiences are. It makes thinking richer. It makes every aspect of life uh, richer. Yeah. um, You can hear me okay, right, Howard? Am I going to be okay? Yeah, can I? You can hear me okay? I hear you fine. Hello? Okay, I, yeah, I'm hearing Richard. a beeping. I, I, was, I was hearing a beeping on that. I, it's a great point about labeling. I think that building vocabulary, building word knowledge, word awareness is, is, a, is an absolutely fundamental task, probably yeah. not stressed enough in school, should be stressed more. Word bombardment, and like you're saying, labeling. is. So, you can go in your backyard. I, I feel the, I wish I could label more. You know, there's so many things around us that I wish I had the names of. You know, the the, the nat- you know nature that surrounds us, creatures, yeah. bugs. Kid, kids love that stuff, which really leads you to your next point, which is yeah, yeah. And, uh, which is take your child places and and wait. Yeah, right. No, you're talking about taking pictures. And labeling those, like how are you using photos with your kids and grandkids and and the labeling there? Okay, let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. My youngest granddaughter is four. Uh, I'm lucky. I probably see her virtually every day for quite a period of time. She lives only 95 feet away from me. Maybe it's 85 feet, but uh, she's right close by. And we have a lot of property in the back. And we have lots of ducks and squirrels and chipmunks and things of that sort. Uh, Unfortunately, we have two large raccoons, but that's something else. And she goes outside, and she has a little camera, and uh, she takes pictures of the ducks and the raccoons and the squirrels and things of that sort. And we talk about them, and we talk about how the... um, Squirrels scamper up the trees, and how the squirrel and how the ducks are so well organized when they walk in line. And we use words like scamper and organize. And it shocks me the way that a four-year-old, who by the way has no genetic relationship to me, how a four-year-old picks all of this up. Okay. All right, one one and, second, Howard. You make it. Hold on. One one second. Everybody, if you are listening, in one minute it's going to cut off, and we but we are going to continue the interview. So. Hang in there, okay? Thanks, Howard. Keep going. 
Okay, and so we put a label on her pictures. So we put the label ducks on on pictures of ducks and chipmunks on pictures of chipmunks. And uh, we 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 asked her to point to the D in ducks and the C in chipmunks. We don't make a big deal out of it. If she doesn't want to do it, she doesn't have to. And can you give me the picture of the animal that starts with the letter C? And she's in to this because she sees her cousins who who are only a few blocks from here uh they come over and they draw and they read and she wants to be like them so uh doing these simple things that are fun and you don't pressure kids makes them want to learn of course if it becomes too difficult you stop it uh, simple example, things, sim- yeah, I want to do simple things that are fun that may- helps them want to learn. You know, it's like I can just picture so much what you're describing in terms of your interaction with your daughter in the backyard. And, and, in, and that is, a, that in some ways, is one of the greatest reading lessons that you can be doing with a, a young child. Sure. And Without reading. <laughs> no reading. Yeah. yeah, but all of this is the foundation for reading. Right. It's, look, another game that we play sometimes because she's four years old is to build up what's called a phonological awareness, and people may have heard the, uh, uh, the, the, the term phonemic awareness. A phonemic awareness is a subset, is part, is, a, is the most difficult part of phonological awareness. And right now she's at the point where she's into dealing with bigger units. So I'll say M. That's her name, right? M, uh, I'm going to say three words. Uh, do you want to play the three-word game? She can tell me yes, and we'll play it. If you want to play the three-word game, she can tell me no, and we won't play it. Uh, and in the three-word game, I'll give her two words that are the same and one word that's different. And she needs to find the word that is different. Here we go. Ball, alligator, ball. Which word is different? Now, she's learned same and different, and she'll come up with alligator. As time goes on, we introduced more difficult words. Which word is different? Ball, ball, tall. Well, that tall and alligator are are very different because tall sounds like ball, except for the beginning sound, which is called uh, the, uh, the, the onset. Uh, but she, but she's beginning to understand. I'm not giving her more difficult concepts now because that would frustrate her. So you, so you lead by following, and that's what's happening here. And it's a game format. She's four right. years old. Four year old kids right. want to play. Yeah, right, right, and and yeah, and then fortunately, what I'm hearing more and more of. Uh, you know, kindergarten is becoming more like what second grade used to be, and it just seems like so, so to me, and what I understand, so misguided. I think that you're right on the money in terms of, you know, what young kids need, um, and and I think that it's built. It would be building so many. Beside the fact that it's just pure fun, it's also building all these cognitive structures and and things that they need for later on, later literacy. But Absolutely. we're missing that mark. Point also, eight, keep in saying, mind that. Sure, uh, go on. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Keep in mind what? Just keep in mind that kids need research. They need a recess. 
it stimulates their brains, it brings more oxygen to their brains, more nutrition to their brains. Uh, They need lots of this stuff. Yeah, well, you know. And and 70-year-old men like me need it, too. Yeah, well, yeah, right. Well, I agree with you about all that, but, you know, I think we're, unfortunately, I'm finding the trends moving in other directions, which is very sad. Um, Involve your next point. We're going to try to get. We're going to. We have a few more minutes. All right. Involve you. You say involve other children. So what? Yeah. Um, what are you talking about here? We're social beings. Kids copy from one another. They want to be like all the other kids. Okay. Or they pick a few kids that they want to look like. So you involve some good models, some good kids with the struggling reader. Kids who may read to him, uh, who may play football uh, with him, uh, who will be his partner in a reading and writing activity and support him rather than put him down. Involve him with other kids. Uh, Kids can do uh, paired reading too. Uh, Or you could revise it. You could modify it where kid A, the better reader, reads the paragraph aloud. Then kid B, who's struggling, reads the same paragraph after he does. So you can have them work together. One of the keys is that they like each other and they're supportive of one another. Great point. Um, encouraging the, you know, those, those kind of transactions and the interactions and negotiations, which is also you know, the side feature of that, which I can remember every day being on the street and arguing, you know, was he out, was he safe, and, you know, the rules of the game. And all of those structures go into, you know, the the, the things that that are the building blocks of language and reading. Um, Your your point nine is help your child develop pride in something that he or she likes. Look, like I said before, school is tough. Draining, um, it's straining, it's humiliating sometimes for kids who struggle with reading. I mean, I know it from having been a stutterer for God knows how many years, how tough it can be. But when you develop pride in something that other people value, that you value, that you do well, parents can help kids outside of school. If you live in a rural area and... Um, your child likes to fish, likes to go fresh water fishing. I mean, help him to become real skilled at this. This is something he can eventually write about, he can talk about, he can win some medals, or just plain have fun and be very competent at what he's doing. You don't have to win medals. Sometimes the pride that you take is just becoming better at it just a little, little bit every time you go out. So if you can find an area that your child likes, that he wants to uh, develop competence in, that he's going to take pride in, it helps to balance out the difficulty that he's having in school. None of what I'm saying replaces good, high-quality reading instruction. None of it replaces a high-quality reading evaluation, but all can add to making his reading instruction successful. And 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 add to helping them become just uh, more fully 
competent, you know, human beings. I mean, I, I find one of the things I, I try to do when a child leaves the evaluation that I've yeah. done with him or her is is to really point, look, you did, look how well you did on this kind of a task. And they usually walk out with a mm-hmm. sense of, wow, I, I'm, not, I'm not as bad as I thought, which is, I think, exactly what you're talking about. Absolutely, Absolutely Richard. Uh, we all need that. Look, one of the things that gets lost too often in IEPs and schools is the emotional well-being of the child. Right. What good is it if you're really right. a good reader right. and you've or or you've made two years in progress, but emotionally you are a wreck, you are depressed, you have no confidence in yourself, uh, you don't want to be around people anymore. I mean, what right. good is that? I mean, we have to look at a kid not just as a struggling reader. We have to look at him or her as a person whose emotional well-being is critical. Now, it's true that struggle in reading can take away from that, so we want to remediate the problems in reading. But at the same time, we don't want to sacrifice the emotional well-being of the child or create emotional difficulties for the child. The world is tough enough. Life is tough enough. Sure is. And I... uh... (laughs) Great, great points. Um, last point here is um, you talk about the value of a good night's sleep. And it's an interesting last point when we're talking about struggling readers. So in uh, maybe a minute or so, what would you say about that point? It's critical. Uh, if you don't get a good night's sleep on a regular basis, then emotionally and intellectually you're going to suffer. Uh and that also means some of the people around you may suffer. Irritability may go up, weight may go up, uh, a cognitive a swiftness, if you will, working memory may go may go down in the in the child's bedroom. And very few parents are going to agree with me on this. And even if they do, very few will follow it. But I strongly recommend that you do. No TVs, no computers no iPods in the bedroom, an agreed-upon sleeping time. Uh, This is important for everybody. Quiet activities, a half hour to 45 minutes before sleep. Uh, This is critical. Uh, We all need sleep and restful sleep. Right, so they don't need all all the jangling and the electronics that that are... Yeah, they're keeping them, uh, keep them overstimulated. So, in quick summary, I'm going to see if I can go through this. You could really echo this. Point number one: you talked about bringing fun and satisfaction to the child's life because his school day can be tough and draining and self-esteem yeah. depleted, right? Point number two: right. how it mentioned about, um, you know, kind of talking to the child's teachers and and getting the sense of the lay of the land, correct? And what's and what the right. classroom is going to be uh, coming up so the child has more of an awareness and, and is on a, a, kind of a more sure footing. Point three, you talked about visiting the school and being more actively and visibly a part of the, of the school climate, the school culture. Each school has its own climate and culture, correct, Howard? How am I doing? All right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Point four, read to your child and 
make it fun and don't turn it into, you know, make sure the child doesn't feel singled out, make sure the child isn't feeling any sense of embarrassment as you are reading to him or her. Point five, we have topping from Scotland, toppings paired reading, uh, a simple and powerful method for improving fluency and also fun for parent and child relations. We have point uh, six, labeling, 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 by taking your child places, by building their word awareness, their vocabulary, their schema, um, and then piggybacking on that, you talked about taking like your grandchild and taking her out and photo taking photos of the backyard and labeling what she's seeing and interacting around that. Point eight, making sure that your child is kind of embedded in a social context, so don't get them too isolated, get them out with other children. Howard and I both are worried about over-isolating with technology and, and the, I see kids in my waiting room who don't want to say hello. They're just stuck on their iPads. Number nine, um, help your child develop a sense of pride and, you know, something that they can hold on to of personal value. And point nine, get them to, I mean, point ten, get them to bed, get them to sleep, let them get a good night's rest, get all the electronics out of their room. Dr. Margolis, you gave wonderful points. I think that these should be like a Ten Commandments to parents of you know all kids. It's not just for struggling readers. Really, all kids can benefit from these kind of points. But I think that for the struggling readers, because of their tank getting depleted and because of their of getting in a sense you know emotionally beaten up, beaten down, whatever, they need it a lot more than the than the kids that are on the smoother road. So Howard. Thank you so much. You're more than um, welcome, you, Bridget. You brought great points forward. Really wonderful. I knew you'd really, uh, you know, offer a lot to parents. Please check out. Go to Howard's website, um, re- www.reading2008.com or howardmargolis.com. He his book is wonderful. The reading, uh, reading disabilities beating the odds. I've I've referred to it many times. Um, I invite you to visit my website, www.shutdownlearner.com, and I'm on Facebook under Shutdown Learner and Twitter, uh, Dr. Cells and all that stuff. Um, and make sure you go to the Coffee Clutch. That's where ho- our host is, thecoffeeclutch.com. That's one word, the Coffee Clutch with a K, K-L-A-T-C-H. They have wonderful hosts talking about a lot of topics and our our sponsors, Mayor Johnson, that's Mayor, M-A-Y-E-R, Johnson.com, and YouDiscovering.org. And I thank you for listening to School Struggles, the place you come to for down-to-earth, no-nonsense, plain language about your child. And we'll see you next month. Howard, thank you, and good night, all. Take care, Richard. Take care. Bye. Good night.